Marini's Media. Totally Football Show. Five rounds to go and the plot thickens. At Southampton, Saints, Jesus and a wholly surprising scoreline. At Wolverhampton, Arsenal beating Wolves away like they were Nigel Pearson in the Cup Athens. We'll be discussing all that plus the future for Liverpool, when predictions go right and when Mourinho does charming in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. In this brave new paradigm of social responsibility. Hello there uh, to you, our favourite listener. It is the 6th of July for you. And in the pod, we have for you today Daniel Story. Hi, James. Hi, Daniel. Michael Cox. Hi, James. Welcome back, Michael Cox. And hello again to Matt Davis Adams. Hello, James. All right, then. What did you make of the weekend then, Matt? I saw you were talking about bangers on, on social media. Yeah. I kind of felt like this was the weekend that the Premier League came back because not just the bangers, Marshall, Greenwood, Egan, Saka and then Shea Adams just, just to top it all off. But it just feels like there's a bit more intensity slash fitness slash quality to the games than we've seen. And hopefully that's not a one-off and, and it will continue throughout this midweek and for the next, whatever, we've got four or five rounds of fixtures left. Mm. Well, let's hope so. What was your favourite bit, Daniel? I think the the nicest surprise was the Newcastle West Ham game. I watched all the games on Sunday, and uh, I kind of felt that that might be the the hardest to watch. But it was really open. I agree with Matt. I don't know if the football necessarily peaked this weekend, but it felt like teams were a bit more prepared to kind of go at each other and play on the front foot. Maybe that's partly due to tiredness, in that everything just feels a little bit more open because players are getting a bit more time on the ball. But yeah, I thought it was a great game. And what a way to finish off the weekend, eh, Michael, with that wonderful Saints-Man City, the victory of Southampton. Yeah, that was a surprise, I must say. I looked at this game thinking Southampton didn't have that much to play for and City probably in the same situation in a different way. But yeah, it was a really good game, I thought, uh, throughout. Southampton started really well and then uh, hung on very well at the end. So yeah, I agree with Matt, a good weekend of Premier League action. Mm. Let's start with a, a few reflections on events at St Mary's Sunday evening. The goal, the only goal of the game, scored early by Shea Adams, Ernesto Shea Adams, I think to give him his full name. In some ways, we shouldn't be surprised because this is actually Man City's third straight away defeat. But how did Saints do it? Well, they they press really high at the pitch, which is something that Ralph Hasenhutl has wanted them to do for a long time. And it helps when you have players like Danny Ings and James Ward-Prowse who are at their happiest, running and running and running and, and all, you know, all power to them for that. And then they defended really well. I mean, Manchester City, I'm assuming, will have hammered Southampton on the XG and will feel rightly annoyed that they didn't take at least a point and probably three. But the amount of clearances, you know, Jack Stevens alone made in the last half an hour were, was exceptional. They just kind of narrowed the pitch and forced City to cross and cross and cross. Zinchenko must have put in 12 or 15 balls into the box and... Southampton were kind of happy with that. Gabriel Jesus is off his game and he, they would always fancy their chances of, of clearing the ball in the air when it's delivered. So, yeah, I think City probably uh, probably had a little bit of tiredness, but 
you know, get brilliant from Southampton to kind of dig in like that. A situation, and the BBC were keen to kind of repeatedly stress this, they're already safe, so they don't really need this. But I think Hazen, who just wants to kind of send a message of this is what will be next season... Yeah, it was a masterclass of, of organisation and, and discipline from from Hasenhutl. And, and not just that, but got the players to, to buy into that in this game in particular, but but more generally since they were beaten 9-0 by Leicester, which you think back to the performance they put in tonight compared to then and, and the fact they were under the same manager is is pretty extraordinary. Um, there were a lot of standout performers for, for Southampton, but Alex McCarthy obviously caught the eye because he made a number of saves and, and it made me think, Maybe he's got a shout of getting in the England team for the Euros next year. You know, he replaced Angus Gunn after that 9-0 and, and has been there ever since. And, and I looked it up because I had a vague memory of it. And he does actually have an England cap, just the one from, from 2018. But he looked brilliant for them. And, and it's not England's best position at the moment. So I know we'll probably talk about Mason Greenwood and Bakayo Saka later as people who could be playing for England in the Euros next year. But I wouldn't rule McCarthy out of that either. What about Shea Adams with his under-20s caps, having just looked that up? Could he be due a, a role with Gareth Southgate? What, what about his goal, Michael? Not just opportunistic, but brilliant technically as well, no? It was a good spot, I think, to catch Edison off his line. I think there's a, an argument that maybe uh, it, it might have been in, in the back of Southampton striker's mind, the fact that Edison is often so far off his line. There was a, a moment in the, um, the, the victory over Liverpool midweek where he made an early save from, I think, Mane, where Edison was like right on the edge of his uh, box, just a position you wouldn't expect to see a goalkeeper in. So yeah, very good to spot the opportunity. I think this might sound stupid, it might sound really harsh, but I think he'd be disappointed if he missed it. Honestly, I think the ball was rolling really nicely and the goal's open there. I don't think it was actually a particularly hard finish. But yeah, of course, the um, the awareness was was excellent. Oh, I mean, there were many ways that you could have put that in the net, but the way that he chose to do that curly put on it was particularly delicious. That was the finish of a man who scored 22 goals in the championship last season rather than somebody who scored none in the Premier League up until today. And, you know, very close to leaving Southampton in January with lots of, of suitors in the championship, teams going for promotion. But yeah, he stuck around and maybe he'll feel it's worth it for that moment. He also qualifies to play for both Scotland and Antigua and Barbuda, James. So if he does play internationally, it could uh, could be for one of them. Crikey. That is interesting. Half an hour to go, Pep turned to the bench and brought on Phil Foden and Kevin De Bruyne. And at that point, I kind of thought, oh, well, it's a matter of time until this currently rather interesting scoreline takes on a more predictable uh, shape. But no, Saints had chances at the end themselves, didn't they? I know they, they withstood a barrage, but they had chances. Yeah, and they, City are kind of, in that type of game, I guess you are always kind of open to to the counter and especially with the directness of, of those Southampton players, you know, Armstrong and Redmond and Shane Long when he came on as well. I actually thought Kevin De Bruyne was quite disappointing when he came on. There were a few passes where I think he chose the wrong option or he overhit the pass. I'm surprised he brought off Riyad Mahrez so early because he didn't start on Thursday and I thought he was probably City's best player in the first half. Um, and they were getting some joy down that right-hand side. That seemed to be where the chances came from. So I was a bit surprised about that. But yeah, someone like Raheem Sterling has pretty much started every game recently. Just to um, reiterate something that I think Matt touched upon earlier, just there were a lot of standout individuals for Southampton. And when they were struggling midway through last season, I remember thinking, you know, it's players like Stevens and Ward-Prowse who have been kind of promising for a couple of years that probably have to step up and, and become leaders. And I think they really have. Stevens, I thought, was excellent in this game um and Ward Prowse who I must must admit a couple of seasons ago 
In fact, even last season, I didn't really get Ward-Prowse. Obviously, a really good deliverer of set pieces, but I wasn't quite sure what player he was in open play. He played sometimes on the right, sometimes right back, right wing back. But he's he's made himself into a good, combative, all-round central midfielder. I think he's uh, better defensively now. He gets into goal-scoring positions in open play a little bit more. He's got a good relationship with Romeo, who, who tends to kind of sit there and break up play, and, and Ward-Prowse can go forward a bit more. So, yeah, there was... Um, you know, lots of players in that Southampton side that can be really pleased with their performance. Walker Peters as well, I think, is probably the best I've seen in play at uh, this level. So, yeah, really good display from Southampton. Well, that 1-0 victory for Southampton leaves them in 13th place, but very comfortably positioned as they approach the final weeks of the season. Meantime, Liverpool, the team that City beat 4-0 on Thursday evening, were in action themselves earlier on Sunday, taking on uh, Aston Villa, looking to extend that Absolutely 100% perfect record at home. And they did, but it wasn't easy, was it? No, it was pedestrian. It was it was everything we expect, I guess, from a team that's just won the league. I know he was fuming on the touchline on occasions on Thursday and he was even more demonstrative uh, on Sunday because it was so pedestrian. I, I, I have no issue with the team's performance as a whole and, and let's be honest, they won 2-0 and were pretty comfortable in the last 15 minutes. But... I think it's the the performances from those fringe players who surely now have a point to prove because the youngsters are coming through the academy and want first-team football. The first team is pretty settled. Um, so it's the it's Naby Keita, it's Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, it's Divock Origi. And two of those three players came after after an hour at the score at nil-nil and Liverpool were playing dismally, quite frankly. I was pretty disappointed in Oxlade-Chamberlain and the reality is, is that Origi is, is not good enough to be a backup striker at a top-six club, I don't think. Wow. It's kind of uncharted territory for Liverpool. Having won the league, they've now got to fulfil the rest of their fixtures, but in this strange situation with no fans to play in front of. So you can understand a, a drop of of intensity. Is the rest of this season now all about building for next year? And if so, what exactly is Jurgen Klopp going to be looking to see? Is it all about the fringe players, Michael? Yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, I... I suspect that they are interested in that points record. I mean, when you look at... I can't remember who it was against, but the game just before Liverpool played Atletico in that Champions League uh, second leg, I expected that Klopp was going to rest players ahead of that. And he pretty much... I mean, he played the the full front three. And I can only think that he, he is interested in getting 100 points and, and breaking the record that City have got a couple of years ago. I mean, the funny thing is now, teams tend to win the league by such big margins that it's almost like they're not competing against the other teams sometimes they're competing against historically the best teams it seems like whenever Bayern Munich or PSG win the league we talk about the points record as much as second place so yeah bringing in the fringe players I mean um, the young lad uh, Jones got himself on the score sheet which which will be a boost to him but yeah I mean like Daniel says I think Oxlade Chamberlain and, and Naby Keita are the players that maybe can break into the side for next year but didn't really do too much to impress in uh, in this game. On the building for next season thing, I always kind of take that with a pinch of salt. If, if a team's won the league at this stage or they've achieved their objective or they've been relegated and there are lots of games left to go, but it's much more pertinent now because there's going to be such a short window between the end of this season and the start of next season. So you are in effect going to be able to carry out momentum or otherwise into next season in a way that I don't think it's normally particularly relevant. So Oliver Mitchell writing and is saying, what is the pod's view on where Liverpool will need to strengthen if they're to retain the Premier League next season. What do you look at in that team and think that needs an upgrade? I, I guess they will try and buy a, another forward and, and Origi will kind of flitter out. That's the one position, I know they've bought Minamino, but that's the one position in which they don't really have a, 
an obvious youngster unless Rian Brewster is, is going to come back from Swansea ready for first team, which I don't think he is. Uh, and obviously there are links to, to Thiago Alcantara as another central midfielder. I think maybe Genie Wijnaldum is the probably really harsh name because he's had a great season, but he's the one you look at in the first choice team and think maybe is there an upgrade there. But I mean, there's not an awful lot. That's the difficult thing for Liverpool because the first 11 is so settled. It's hard to sell to young players and, and potential signings. But that's what, exactly what we saw with Timo Werner, that if you can't guarantee football every week, it's quite hard to upgrade. What about Villa then? They ended up losing 2-0, but in many ways, a uh, performance that spoke of uh, fight and character and those kind of things, Michael. What, what about their chances? They're still only one point away from safety. Yeah, I mean, they look better defensively than they have at, at some points this this uh, season. I mean, I th- they just really lack quality in the final third. I mean, El Ghazi, Trezeguet and Davis started as the front three and all got taken off. Jota, Samata and Vasilev came on. I mean, I'm not sure any of these players, with maybe the exception of, of Trezeguet, are really good enough for the Premier League, if I'm being honest. The good news for Villa is that the form of the other side of the bottom has been even more miserable. I mean, Villa have got two points so far since the restart and the other three of the bottom four have got one point between them. So it's almost unchanged since we restarted. I think a lot of... A lot of people, myself included, have kind of said that the, the quality at the bottom of the league this year has been pretty strong. And we're maybe swayed a little bit too much by games like this, where the bottom sides have fought well against the top sides, um, but still got beaten narrowly. The reason these sides are struggling is they're not getting victories against the sides around them. Um, and Villa aren't the only team culpable in that respect. I think Norwich are the obvious examples there as well. But I think with the fact that all these 10 games are televised every weekend means we probably see more of the bottom sides than we did before. Um, And combined with the fact that the extra subs benefits the top sides, the lack of fans, I think, penalises the bottom sides. We are seeing that the bottom four are actually quite weak in some areas. All right. Did anyone have a strong view about Jack Grealish's performance today? I say this because uh, he was the target of uh, some of Graham Sunes's analysis pre-game, where referencing the point that Grealish is the most foul player in the Premier League, Sunes suggested that wasn't because he was really skillful and thus a target, but actually that he, he's just very bad at decision making. Um, <laughs> Graham then asked himself, "Would I like to have played against him?" and answered. Absolutely, which is a fascinating <laughs> thought soonest against Grealish. Uh, did his performance do anything to dispel Graham's suggestion that he holds onto the ball too long and doesn't see the big picture? I think there was a vague point explained pretty badly by Sunes in that I think Grealish, well, he obviously revels in being the leader and, and taking responsibility, but the reality is, is that when he plays badly and Let's face it, he's played badly in every game since the restart. It's a handicap to Villa because he does so much that if he doesn't do it really well, the whole team struggles. I don't. I agree with Michael. I don't think the players around him are good enough to, to justify Villa changing that plan because Grealish is by far their best and most likely option. But that he really does stick out when he plays badly because so much of their play goes through him and they need to find a way to make him more effective in the final third. They really, Whether that's another change of system to get him kind of off the striker as a number 10 or what, but... He's not doing enough in effective areas at the moment. I mean, if you look at the statistics, Grealish has created the second most chances in the Premier League behind Kevin De Bruyne. I know some of them are for set pieces, but 
I'm not quite sure about this idea. His decision-making is not good enough. I think he's had a really good season. I think behind De Bruyne, he's maybe been the, the best attacking midfield in the Premier League, to be honest. So, yeah, I, I think there's an argument that he maybe likes being fouled too much. I mean, he's been quite open about the fact he doesn't mind being kicked. He sees it as a badge of honour to get fouled so much. Maybe he could release the ball quicker at some point, but let's not go OTT. He's, he's had a brilliant season for a, a pretty average side, to be honest. You'd, you'd think that the most fouled player in the Premier League would take to wearing shin pads. yeah it's remarkable isn't it well Villa then just one point behind Watford as it stands but they have Man United next so any solutions that Dean Smith's going to come up with he might want to do them fast speaking of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's side we'll be touching on their performance against Bournemouth and much much more next you're listening to the Totally Football Show with James Richardson part of the Athletic Podcast Network and if you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic make sure you check out their coverage of each and every Premier League club by taking out a free 30 day trial by heading to theathletic.com slash totally here's Mason Greenwood taking on Diego Rico oh that's brilliant that is absolutely brilliant from the teenager Mason Greenwood it's an absolute worldie at Old Trafford. JB at Johan is not cool writes in to ask, is Matt Davis-Adams going to get an apology from Zonal Marking and others, that's you, Daniel, for laughing him off the pod when he suggested in the first half of the season that Bournemouth might end up in relegation, relegation trouble? That's right. It was the 28th of October. 28th of October, everybody. Same lineup on the show. And Matt, unprovoked, rounded on the Lovable Cherries, who've been the feel-good success story of many a Premier League season and whittled all over the seaside chips, thus. Right, I okay. Think, I think Bournemouth might go down, you know. What? No. Yeah, yeah. Tell us why, Matt. Um, because... So you think they're wor- Which team do you think they're better, worse than out of Southampton, ninth. Norwich and Watford? Uh, I think that Southampton have got the potential to improve. I think Watford might... Uh, go for a third manager and that might get them out. But I'm not seeing from Bournemouth... What I don't see from Bournemouth is Eddie Howe actually improving players that he buys. I think their transfer record's pretty patchy anyway and he doesn't seem to make players that come in better. And I just wonder if this is the year that it that it catches up with him. That's an astonishingly bold shout. But I mean, I really respect you for it, Matt. Well, they're five points above the relegation zone at the moment. Yeah. They haven't scored in any of their last three games. Uh, if Callum and they've Wilson been easy, easy, easy looking games yeah, as well, no? Yeah, uh, keep, keep an eye on them. I think, I think they might be in a bit of trouble. Wow. Bournemouth were ninth at the time. And the following week, they went and beat Man United and moved up to seventh place. And how we all laughed at Matt Davis-Adams. But now, Matt... Good Lord, there's, there's no... I mean, they might not be mathematically down, but they are down. Yeah, it looks that way, doesn't it? I feel a bit bad now, to be honest, but um, their business in the transfer market has been appalling. We've had some quite bad luck with, with injuries this season. I think they were probably pinning a lot on David Brooks coming back after the restart, but he can't do it all himself. I know they scored a couple of goals here, albeit one a penalty and, and one kind of with an assist from Harry Maguire, but generally they don't score enough goals. I don't think Eddie Howe is a kind of dynamic enough manager to inspire people in the way that we've talked about Ralph Hasenhutl doing. And and yeah, as you say, it's been a bad week for them in terms of the amount of goals that they've shipped. Four against Newcastle, five against Manchester United. And I just can't see any way back for them, unfortunately. But, you know, there again, they're a club of a size, a, a stature and a tradition that has done well to maintain Premier League status for five seasons. This is maybe them just returning to the mean. Um, and... 
it might take them a long time to get back into the Premier League, unfortunately, but it's a shame to see them going down with a whimper, which is what it looks like they're doing at the moment. Yeah, although it did seem a little bit different when they opened the scoring in such spectacular fashion, as you say, courtesy of uh, the gap between Harry Maguire's legs and indeed De Gea once again. We do owe you an apology for that because also in that same conversation back on the 28th of October, this was just after Saints had been pumped 9-0 by Leicester and they actually were in the bottom three at the time. And Matt, you also predicted that they would be fine. Incredible. I think that's the only two things I've ever accurately predicted. Michael and I didn't laugh at that, it should be said. Right, of course. <laughs> Excellent. All right, uh, more tweets and relevant to Man United Bournemouth. United fan asks, how difficult is it for you to hate on United now? Now, we, we did do a fair amount of, a fair amount of uh, apologies to United in last Thursday's show uh, and how fantastic they are to watch at the moment. And this was yet another example of that. Uh, a rare five goals at home. They don't do that very often. Uh, these days but everything's just coming good for them at the moment it's good to look at the middle of the venn diagram between united fans saying haha you have to give us some credit now and the manchester united fans saying marcus rashford is dreadful and anthony martial doesn't deserve a place in the team because quite frankly very few people manchester united fans included saw this style of football coming i think and we can't overlook the impact of, of bruno fernandez and mason greenwood who was you know was was far enough away from the first team that Manchester United needed to sign or felt they needed to sign Odion Igalo in the transfer window. So, yeah, this is great. It's what we wanted in that when Pogba returned, Solskjaer had a decision to make between sticking with that kind of functional central midfield or going this version of all-out attack. And they're conceding a few more goals than they did before the lockdown, but they're scoring an awful lot more. Mm. But they have, to be fair, played teams like Bournemouth, Brighton and out of sorts Sheffield United the one time they came up with against a more consistent opponent Spurs they only drew 1-1 so are they all that and Vivek Surendam asks how do you think they'll line up when they go away to a big team will they still go Pogba and Bruno one of them maybe will get sacrificed FA Cup semi will be the first real test of this midfield yeah, that's a fascinating game, the um, the FA Cup semi-final, uh, because Solskjaer has won all three games against Lampard this season. So it will be interesting to see whether they go with that, particularly if you know if Chelsea have got Angola Kante fit, which is a which is a question mark. That would be one thing as to as to whether you go with Pogba Fernandez then, I guess. But I don't think I can't see them changing it uh, based on the opponent, given the way that they're playing at the moment. I think they would um, they'd stick with with what's working so well for them at the moment. Yeah, I mean, their record in big games has generally been pretty good and Solskjaer's proved himself to be a good tactician in those games. I mean, I agree with the point that they've played some not particularly strong opposition in in the last, what, four games, if you include the FA Cup win over Norwich. Um, but, you know, two months ago, we were saying United's problem was they're not very good at winning these kind of home to Bournemouth away at Brighton, home to Sheffield United games. They weren't very good at breaking down poor sides. And that doesn't seem to be a problem because in the league, they've won three games in a row by three clear goals. So, um, yeah, I mean, they've been excellent. And Fernandez struggling to think of the last time that a player came into a top club and improved them so much. And Greenwood, I think that was just the, you know, encapsulate what he's all about. He's so difficult to defend against because he seems to be one of the most two-footed players that I can remember seeing, really. I think maybe Ramsdale could have done better on both goals, to be honest, but that probably speaks to the power he gets behind the shots with uh, both feet. 
apart from the incredible crop of players they have coming through, is there much that uh, that you can point to Solskjaer doing? This from Connor, who says, other than picking the best eleven and saying nice things about players, are there any in-game tactical changes that are going un- unnoticed? What is the Solskjaer stamp on this team? It's very easy to be slightly churlish about managers but the reality is is if the team's playing well then he deserves to take credit for that we can't criticize him when they're playing badly and then say it's he's just picked the best team when they play well and it, it was a leap of faith because McTominay and Fred that central midfield pairing was was arguably United's highest performing part of their team before the suspension so it did take a leap of faith to to pick Popper and Fernandez partly because you know, Pogba was not a guaranteed starter because it wasn't guaranteed whether he was going to stay. And, and reports now suggest he is happier to stay than he was. So that is a victory for Solskjaer, if nothing else. Um, there's, a, there's a couple of areas he needs to sort out. But if all those players play well, then Solskjaer will back his team to score enough goals or create enough chances to win most games. And as Michael says, their problem before was was breaking down those teams. Villa away next for Man United. On the subject of England, though, Matt, which you referenced before, a couple of people asking how excited you are to see the likes of Rashford and Greenwood uh, lining up for three Lions uh, with uh, the likes of Sancho and Saka and Foden alongside them. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's potentially pretty special. I guess the the buzzkill answer is to say we don't know what they'll be like in terms of fitness and form in, in 12 months' time. But um, yeah, it's certainly exciting, this crop that we've seen this weekend. But also, looking at Daniel's spreadsheet, I mean, the amount of players, the, the depth there um, that Gareth Southgate's got to, to pick from for in terms of young players is quite astonishing, really. Right. Um, tell us more about your spreadsheet, Daniel. Well, it's just a just a depth chart of of England's young options in every position, and uh-huh. um, the point, as well as there being lots of exciting options, the point is, is when they come through like a crop like that, it gives power to those young players because it means if they don't get the minutes that they feel they need or they deserve or they want to to boost their England claims, they will look elsewhere for minutes now, and that has to be a good thing. Not not just the competition for places in the England starting eleven, and we clearly have that almost like we've never had before or certainly had in my lifetime. But it's also about below that. It's about players fighting to to get on the fringes of that England squad and, and fighting for regular minutes at club level. All right. On that spreadsheet, are there any areas where you feel there are still issues or a, a paucity of talent? Yeah, the the two areas we struggle in are, are central defenders, particularly with John Stones, a kind of persona non grata at Manchester City and... Um, and central midfield. Central midfield has got a lot of okay, not okay options, that's harsh, but we talked about James Ward-Prowse before. He's a player who looks exciting at the moment, is clearly in good form. Whether they are able to step up to international level is another question. You know, Declan Rice is another obvious example of that. We know he's good for West Ham. Is he good enough for England? And I guess that's what the next 12 months is about. What What about striker? Well, I was going to say the one, the the best thing about Mason Greenwood and Marcus Rashford and Jaden Sancho and Raheem Sterling is that it means that Harry Kane, remarkably, and it, and it is remarkable, is not necessarily a guaranteed starter for England at the moment, I don't think. If you look at the, the form of the players, I know he is very high in Southgate's estimations, but we've got a plan B there. We've got a very fluid front line plan that doesn't have to involve Harry Kane, which is good when we think about England players and metatarsals before tournaments. Humor me for a second, Daniel. Were you to be waking up tomorrow morning as Gareth Southgate, what would your starting lineup be once you got over the shock? 
right now in on form, it would be Pickford, Maguire, Gomez, Alexander-Arnold, Shaw, I think, which is a weak position. Rice, Henderson, Foden, Rashford, Sancho, Sterling, I think. All right, no Kane. No, I'd go for this kind of young, fluid team, I think. Yeah, I like it. Nice. There you go. Well, uh, returning to this season, lots of excitement around the uh, top four, five race. And we'll be looking at some more of the results from that after this. I thought I'd never see you again. I missed how you made me feel, the excitement you brought me. But I never stopped loving you. Did you just say something, mate? Oh, just looking at the Premier League fixtures like... Absence makes the heart grow fonder, so it's never been a better time to be a football fan. Celebrate with the Acker Cracker from Paddy Power. It covers all games on all markets, and if one leg folds, you get a free bet. Paddy Power. Max free bet £10, minimum odds of 1 to 5 on for each leg. T's and C's apply, 18 plus, begumbleware.org. You're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Talked about Man United's win. What else has happened in the race for top four stroke five? Places. Leicester had a victory 3-0 over Crystal Palace. Jamie Vardy finally breaking his scoring drought and joining the Premier League 100 club with a brace. Chelsea also won 3-0 against Watford. And Arsenal had a 2-0 victory away at Wolves. Yeah, it was it was an interesting game, I thought, and, and probably a, a quite a big win for Arsenal. Um, because I think they, they came across a really well-organised, well-drilled team in, in Wolves and and they matched them in that respect. I didn't think Arsenal were particularly good going forward. I thought there were questions about how the midfield and attack links. I don't think Arsenal really have anyone to play that role if Mesut Ozil is uh, not playing for whatever reason. And, and Arsenal have lost a few players in that area of the pitch last summer. Aaron Ramsey, Alex Iwobi, Mkhitaryan. So it's strange to be talking about an Arsenal side that doesn't have a number 10, which is the kind of position they've specialised in over the years. But apart from that, they're really good. They're well organised at the back. David Luiz has been the big winner of the switch to uh, a three-man defence, where we know he's more comfortable. Uh, Kolasinac has somehow become quite a solid-looking left-sided centre-back, which I wouldn't have, have expected for someone who's clearly better going forward than he is uh, defensively. And yeah, there's a shape and structure to the side, and uh, just lots of little players who, who are kind of coming in and, and making good contributions. I mean, Lacazette has really struggled for form at times this season, but he scored a very good goal as well. So... Yeah, there's been a few positives for Arsenal and I mean, it's amazing how how quickly things can change with so many games at the moment. I mean, three wins on the bounce. It feels like, you know, what was it, two weeks ago we were talking about Arsenal um, losing at Brighton and, and really speaking about them like they were struggling and now they're looking up the table. So, um, yeah, it was a good game, this one. Quite uh, well contested between two yeah, well-organised sides. They've also got some exciting young players coming through and Ketia up front and the uh, midfielder Bukayo Saka who... Earned lots of headlines with that superb goal to uh, open the scoring. Just 18 years old. Duncan Alexander is saying Bukayo Saka joining Mason Greenwood as the only players born after the launch of Townsend's tactics truck to score in the Premier League, which is um, which is droll. Except I never actually... What is the tactics truck? I never saw it in action. So this was when ITV got the rights to... Um what we know as match of the day mm. in 2001 I think I'm right in saying and as one of their sections they had uh, yeah Andy Townsend in a kind of would you call it like an out, outside broadcast right. van yeah an outside broadcast kind of truck and 
Uh, yeah, and he would get one of the uh, players uh, in from the game to kind of go through the clips and the stats of the game that had just happened. I think it was a little bit unfairly maligned, to be honest. I thought it really? was an all right feature. And they tried that. They also tried the use of like a Prozone thing with kind of dots instead of, you know, the actual screen, the kind of overhead dots and they showed the positions and stuff. And it kind of didn't quite work. And I think it probably made you know football television quite cautious for the next decade or so there wasn't too much emphasis on stats and that kind of thing but i didn't think the tactics struck was that bad i think it gets a bit of a harsh rap and actually that the idea behind it is something that sky have brought in this season isn't it get a player in post-match to stand in front of a screen and talk through your best bits while the next pro jabs at the screen in hopes that the the right clip works at the right time so you know <laughs> 19 years ahead of his time he was Dan, did you have fond memories of the tactics truck? No, I remember it, it looked like, uh, rather than outside broadcast truck, it looked like he was one of those guys in a, an American crime drama kind of <laughs> sussing out a joint in a non-marked white van, um, jabbing oh, at the screen. was it that kind of truck? Yeah, I think so. Um, right. But I, I, I actually agree. I think, the, I think the problem was it, was it was named after something that sounds like an awful kind of Channel 5 game show giving it that weird moniker didn't help if you just said we're going to andy townsend to talk about some tactics i think it would have been less <laughs> malign than it was i'm a little bit disappointed i i had envisaged it as some kind of kit to andy townsend's uh, david hasselhoff roaming the the the, the stadia of, of england and <laughs> dispensing tactical justice uh, but but anyway bizarrely no footage of of andy in his tactics truck exists because uh, I went looking for it after after this. But anyway, listener, yeah, you, we'll, we'll move on. We'll move on. Well done, Arsenal. Andrew Lang saying Arsenal seem to be good, less Arteta tacker than putting two people around David Luiz and passing the ball out wide to Saka and Tierney, who combined for the goal and have looked brilliant. Europe very much in prospect. They're now seventh, three points behind Wolves in sixth and obviously very much in the Europa League position. Six points off a potential Champions League spot, so that might be a bit difficult. But are they going to push on uh, they've got Leicester next who of course finally got a win this weekend it's interesting on on Arsenal in Europe I saw a, a poll by a, an Arsenal blogger I forget which one it was but um, asking whether fans would rather get in the Europa League or just have the Premier League and the the definitive answer was that they'd rather not be in the Europa League and I know that's partly because the Europa League is, is seen as a bit of a Thursday night joke competition by supporters of some clubs who feel like they maybe should be in the Champions League but I also think there's merit to that. If it's going to be a congested season and, and it's Arteta's first full season at Arsenal and he's got to make changes and, and clearly the energy of the players is going to be important in that. There is an argument for it, a very valid one, I think, that Arsenal have been in the Europa League for a few years. They've not won it. Maybe they are better without it and just to go at the Premier League and see what they can do in that. Well, at the moment, they better watch out because they're hurtling headlong towards a Europa League spot, but maybe a visit from Leicester will help them in their bid to avoid that. Uh, Michael, you saw the Foxes return to winning ways this weekend. Yeah, this was, um, I would say, almost a classic game since the restart and since the first half was really bad and the second half was much more entertaining. Um, I mean, the big story, obviously, was uh, was Jamie Vardy getting his 100th and 101st Premier League goals. And it was the classic situation where he looked completely short of confidence in the first half. He desperately needed, as they say, 
want to go in off his backside. It never actually happens like that, does it? I mean, you just don't see goals go in off someone's backside. But what does happen sometimes is if you hang around the penalty box for long enough, you get an open goal and that's what happened. And then, uh, of course, after that, he was confident enough to dink in the second. Yeah, I mean, obviously a really big win for Leicester because they'd restarted really badly. Rodgers changed system here. He went for three at the back, which... I don't think worked particularly well first half, but they had to rejig it at half time because of an injury to Chilwell, and they seemed a bit more threatening down the flanks. Um, that said, Palace are another one of these sides who just seem to be. I mean, this was a dreadful performance. They offered absolutely nothing. There's been so many games I've seen, I think a disproportionate number of games I've seen since the restart, where one of the sides just doesn't even vaguely have a chance. I mean, until the 88th minute when Zaha poked over from a Townsend cross. Palace just offered nothing, um, and they're yeah they're one of the few sides I think who have very little to play for and well are playing like it really. Mm. Some teams who do have a lot to play for are down at the bottom of the table. We saw a big win for Brighton down there against Norwich, which pretty much makes them safe. A point for West Ham at Newcastle, a game Matt that you were commentating on. Watford losing three 0 at Chelsea, another game that you were commentating on, and that's now. One win in 11 in the Premier League for the Hornets, who face Norwich on Tuesday. Uh, Matt, I think you said that Newcastle West Ham was uh, surprisingly entertaining. Yeah, it really was. Um, and, and particularly with what we've been talking about in that the first half was really good, which is not something that I've experienced um, since the restart. And and it, it it kind of it benefited from the fact that Newcastle are one of these teams who, as we've been talking about, don't have much to play for, but they're also in really good form and they seem to be enjoying themselves. And West Ham had a had a desperate need to take something from this game, so they were highly motivated, started it really well. A um, couple of really well crafted goals from either side in the first half. First, Antonio after uh, four nails, who was excellent in the first half, had, had teed up Jared Bowen, and then Miguel Almiron yeah, finishing off a, a good cross from from Kraft and. And Alma on a, a sort of nice illustration of, of the good job that Steve Bruce has done there in that he's Newcastle's top scorer this season. And, and so Bruce has obviously done something to get a tune out of a player who famously went so long without scoring at all uh, for Newcastle. But I mean, David Moyes will be absolutely furious with the fact that his team led twice in this game and didn't win, went 2-1 up and then conceded from kickoff, um, which was fairly ludicrous. But having seen West Ham's last couple of games, I, I put Watford in this category as well in that there are three worse teams than them. But but what West Ham and you know their their board don't get much praise and, and rightly so in a lot of cases. But what they do deserve praise for is, is they made a couple of really canny pickups in January when they got Thomas Suchek in on loan and Jared Bowen from Hull, who'd been excellent in a really poor Hull side. And and Bowen has been fabulous in these last two games that I've seen. His, his delivery is superb. He's a, a tireless worker going back and going forward. And I think, actually, that those two signings will play a big part in keeping them up, which, which you would expect them to do now, four points above the drop and a, a lot of teams worse than them below them. Bowen also wants the ball, which is, is not the case always for some of those big-name West Ham Attacking midfielders, Felipe Anderson is the obvious example, who they sometimes go missing when the going gets tough. To say he's come from the championship and he's only 23, fair play to the to the kid because he, he does, he's courageous, he wants the ball, he, he drops deep to pick it up, he runs at his man, he manages to create space. And, you know, he's not an Alex Maximan kind of winger in that he's not going to beat four players, but... The industry there alone is is worth two or three points to West Ham, and that's exactly what it has been worth over the last you know over the last two games. Mm. Matt, tell us about Chelsea's win over Watford. 
yeah, just what Chelsea were after after that that stinker of a performance against West Ham last week. A, a Watford team who, who came and, and offered nothing. Chelsea able to get, I think, a second clean sheet in eleven games. Watford didn't didn't lay a glove on them. Um, Frank Lampard will feel vindicated in his selection. The, the calls that he made were fairly big. You'd call Tony Rudiger the the senior central defender, and and he was dropped for Kurt Zuma. Um, Zuma, who's won more aerial challenges than than any other Chelsea defender, seemed like a natural to come into this game to to play against um, Troy Deeney. I also think, actually, even though Aspilicueta is not a natural left back, him at left back and, and Reese James at right back is probably the best setup for Chelsea in terms of that part of the defence. And and Olivier Giroud again, you know, offering more to the team as a whole than Tammy Abraham is just now. So so he thoroughly warranted his recall. Chelsea played well. Ross Barkley, I thought, played really well. He's an absolutely baffling footballer. I mean, he can go from providing sublime assists and brilliant finishes to literally kicking the ball out of play. I find him completely puzzling, but, you know, obviously there is a good player in there somewhere. Um, But yeah, just what Chelsea needed because Watford came to Stamford Bridge, looked like they were trying to avoid a hiding and and very much had their their eye on the next three games, which are Norwich and Newcastle at home and then away to West Ham. So massive for them in terms of their season, but they were were pretty poor in this game. I think that the issue for Chelsea is, and I know obviously they have to get points to get over the line and, and make the Champions League this year. And if they do that, Lampard will have done very well. But they seem to be building towards a a title challenge for next year when you look at the players they're bringing in. Just looking at that side, I'm not sure how many players I'd fancy to start next season on a regular basis in that position. Pulisic, you probably say will. Uh, Rhys James, probably at right back. Even Kante, I'm slightly struggling to see necessarily holding down his place. They just seem to have chopped and changed quite a lot over the course of the season. And there's lots of players like Kepper, like Zuma, like Christensen... Um, who I don't think have nailed down their place. There's players like Willian Giroud and Azpilicueta, who I think might be eased out next year or, or might not be at the club in Willian's case. So it's a strange situation for Chelsea. They do seem to slightly be in flux. Um, I mean, as I say, if they get Champions League, Lampard's done a great job, but I'm, I'm not sure I see the structure in place for them to kind of progress with a particular unit. That's a very valid point to make, and and obviously they've had players out injured this season, which has meant it's been it's been difficult to to get a settled side, and and the the question marks over the players that Michael's mentioned is a problem because it's going to be difficult to get recruits of that quality in in those kind of positions. I think the big area that they definitely need to upgrade is is centre half, um, but then you would say that about probably the top six teams in the Premier League and there aren't many names who, who leap out as as players that you think well they could definitely do a really good job for a Chelsea or a Manchester United or whoever but yeah there is a bit of flux about Chelsea at the moment that that's right and it is going to be interesting to see who stays and who goes you know there's lots of fringe players who can and will leave in the summer Pedro's Emerson's uh, you know William who we've already spoken about not a fringe player but somebody who is going to leave so there is going to be a lot of change and it's going to be interesting to see how Frank Lampard manages that because there's obviously a big difference in having a team made up not predominantly but in large part of youth players as opposed to experienced internationals 26 to 28 years old who you've got to kind of mould and and, and bend to your game plan. All right, a couple of other games out there that you can chat about or not. Michael, what do you fancy? Bit of Burnley Sheffield United, 1-1 or Brighton's win away at Carrow Road? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that game probably 
keeps Brighton up, it means they've got as many points as they recorded last year under Hewton, and presumably they will get more in the remaining five games. So I think Graham Potter can be very satisfied with that. I mean, I was at the reverse fixture of this uh, down at the Amex in November, I think. And Norwich were really poor and considered a couple of really disappointing goals. And as I said earlier, I think it's games like this where, where Norwich have really lost it. They've battled well against the big sides, against the sides around them at the bottom. They often struggle. And and just the selection for this game, I mean, Pookie and Cantwell, who was so impressive at the start of the season, were both on the bench. Um, I think Farker's just kind of trying everything. And in, in fairness, I thought Hernandez down the left was quite bright. Um, Ida when he came on hit the post and, and has been quite lively um, but they've kind of ran out of steam I think Norwich and uh, ran out of confidence as well and from Brighton's perspective I think you have to give Potter some some credit because I was down at the Amex again in midweek for the game against Manchester United and I was quite shocked when I saw the starting lineup for that game and basically all their good attackers have been left out but he brought back Mope and Moy and Trossard here um, you know, having presumably wanted to keep them fresh for this game. And it worked. I mean, Moy was really good. Uh, Trossard uh, scored the winner from from Moy's cross with a really good finish. So, yeah, I'm pleased Brighton are going to be in the Premier League next year. I think that they can progress. I think Potter's a good manager. I'd like to see a little bit more from them because, to be honest, I'm a bit surprised it's taken them till now to almost confirm their survival because their squad's really good. But I think they are a club who can progress and, and get better next year. Yeah, just a word of praise for for Brighton's recruitment, which I think up until uh, last summer hadn't been great in in their time in the Premier League. But they spent reasonable money on on Championship players with potential, but but not sort of guaranteed pedigree in in Adam Webster and um, and Neil Morpé. And and you hold that recruitment up to somebody like Villa, who just scattergun spent you know as much as Real Madrid and Manchester United and have very little to show for it. It's um, it's a pat on the back for for Brighton's recruitment department because they clearly did their job very well. The the Brighton player who who I think is their best and who if I was a bigger club would be looking around is is Eve Basuma in central midfield. Every time I see him, he seems to do this old school Angolo Kante or maybe it's Wilfred Ndidi that does it best now. But this kind of every time the opponent the opponent breaks, you wonder who's going to get an attack and it always seems to be him. It always seems to be him getting in. I, you know, even if it's just giving away a throw in on halfway with a, you know, with a kind of breaking up play, he just seems to be so good at it. I didn't realise quite how young he was. He's still only 23, which in that kind of that responsibility for a Premier League club, a bottom half Premier League club is a, a lot to take on board. So yeah, I think he's a really good player. Also this weekend, as mentioned, Burnley drew 1-1 with Sheffield United. But much more interesting than that, listener, are the contents of our bulging mail sack, uh, which you've very kindly filled for us. Let's get on to some of those tweets next. Listen, over on the Ornstein and Chapman podcast feed right now, there's a special episode featuring The Athletic's Carl Anker, Ryan Conway, Rashane Thomas and Dan Barnes are discussing their article asking, why are football crowds so white? They talk about some of the themes from it, some of their own experiences as black journalists at football grounds, whether the game is too quick to pat itself on the back and what meaningful change might look like. Here's Dan Barnes to explain more. There is a lack of uh, people of colour and football crowds in this country are, in most places, a majority white. We spoke to lots of different people to try and put together a snapshot of why certain people from ethnic minorities might not feel comfortable going to football games. And there were lots of different reasons for this, some that I think a lot of people may not have heard of before, from social to economic, also to sort of the, um, the facets of hooliganism and racism that can sometimes be perpetuated in football grounds. 
That's why our football crowd so white, a special episode of the Ornstein and Chapman podcast. And you can find that by searching Ornstein and Chapman wherever you listen to your podcast. And there are related articles too from Carl and Ryan over on The Athletic right now. On the subject, by the way, of The Athletic's podcast, you're probably aware that there are loads of them. Michael has his very own one called Zonal Marking breaking down the tactical and technical details of football, past and present. But whether you're a fan of Arsenal, Liverpool, Man City, Man United, Newcastle, Spurs, Leeds or many others, there's probably a podcast dedicated to your club because there's 15 club-specific shows releasing new episodes every week. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Gav Campbell, hello to you. Gav Campbell wants to know which player has surprised and disappointed the most since the restart in the Premier League. Nice general question there to kick things off. Has anyone got a player who's surprised or disappointed them the most? It's probably an obvious one, but Willian's been really good for Chelsea and he surprised me because, you know, there was speculation he was going to be off because his contract's up. So he could have not been at Chelsea by this point, but he has suddenly become... uh, their most prolific player. Brilliant. Emil Kraft, Newcastle. Watched him today. Looks like a really good fullback with a, with a good cross who can who can defend as well. Uh, maybe that's just because I didn't pay much attention to him before the restart and I've seen a couple of Newcastle games, but he looks a good player. He's a funny one because I think he was a big victim of the switch to three at the back, you know, which they've played for most of the season. He just seems very much a a right back rather than a right wing back or a right sided centre back. So I think the move to four at the backs worked quite well for him. Daniel, uh, very, again, very obvious England centric choices, but just those the the rise of those young kids, you know, Foden and, and Greenwood. This was always going to be the time when they were given minutes, but they're being given minutes when there's still an awful lot on the line, and which is you know is, is a testament to their managers, but also to their pretty obvious and emphatic potential. So, yeah, it's those England kids for me. Alex Cooney wants to know: is it, is this the worst set of? Worst quality set of relegation teams that the league has ever seen. If, asked Alex, you swap the bottom five with the top five in the championship, would the Premier League improve? No, I, I think he's I think he's been very harsh on the three at the bottom. There's been a couple of years. I mean, I'd have to go through the years, but there's been some years where you're like, I don't ever want to watch these teams ever play football again, which I don't think you say about Norwich. Maybe you do about Bournemouth recently. Maybe a little bit Villa, but like, yeah, there's been some years where they've been disgracefully bad, and I don't think that's the case this time around. Would the top three, though, in the championship improve materially the Premier League instead of these three? Well, yeah, that's that's how promotion and relegation works, isn't it? Right. <laughs> and also, it's very it's it's easier to look good in the championship. You know, I remember West Brom when they were last in the Premier League, and it wasn't that exciting. Yes, they're playing quite well in the championship at the moment, and Brentford are a really good story. But again, like Fulham haven't been great to watch this season. They weren't particularly good apart from comedy reasons last season. So it's quite easy to be rose-tinted about the championship, I think. Fair enough. Uh, Dave Bushell wants to know what's happening with the transfer window. Is it open now? And when would it shut? Well, it is open, but players can't play this season unless they've already been registered for this team, if that makes sense. Mm, it does. Do we? Presumably there's no finish date on at the moment because nobody knows exactly when next season is getting underway you're right I mean there had previously been a decision that they were going to um, you know the Premier League had moved so that the transfer window ended before the start of the league they then scrapped that and then we're going to go to the 
Europe-wide date, which is the end of August. I mean, maybe one thing that can come out of all of this is we can standardise the date when the season starts and when the window ends across Europe. That's always been a little bit of a farcical situation, so hopefully that gets sorted out. Mm. Paul Phillips wants to know your thoughts on the situation at Wigan, which we, we touched on a little bit in Thursday's show. Really perplexing and very confusing, or at least not very clear uh, situation regarding the club being put into administration. Uh, Matt, presumably you also covered this in your Totally Football League show. Yeah, I mean, it's it literally broken whilst we were recording the show. So I think we'll probably go um, go deeper on it on it this week. But you read the details of it, it is quite incredible if it weren't for the fact that this sort of thing seems to happen fairly regularly in the AFL and the they don't call it the fit and proper person's test, whatever they call it, it's clearly not fit for purpose if you can buy a club and put it into administration a month later. Um, it's really concerning times for Wigan. Their supporters of this weekend raised £117,000 to cover the travel and accommodation costs for the players for the rest of the season so they can fulfil their fixtures. That's That's how bad that it's got for them um, and it's really disgraceful I mean you know the EFL need to be need to be held to account for this for allowing this to happen because it's very very murky it's very muddy it's quite confusing but if you just peel back a couple of layers here you can see that something clearly wasn't right with the takeover and, and the way that it went through and and it shouldn't have been allowed to and, and this is the situation that Wigan who up until Saturday up until this news broke were, were the form team in the championship if not the country now looks set to be playing in League One next season if they are able to fulfil their fixtures and, and keep going as a football club, which is um, a dreadful state. Shout out to the AFL who, who three days ago placed adverts for a new head of media and public relations, which is, I think we can call a tricky job at the best of times, but in the current scenario is going to be an absolute hospital pass of a gig. Well, among their recent forays into... Uh, Social interaction. Uh, EFL chairman Rick Parry, who was secretly filmed having a conversation with a football supporter, speculating as to whether the selling owners had actually placed a bet on Wigan to be relegated from the championship. And that's why they then declared it, it, it put them into administration so that effectively the points deduction would take them down. There's not been, I think, any evidence of that as yet. In terms of their prospects, uh, Daniel, I have read of potential buyers being there, possibly able to pick up the pieces. Yeah, and it should be said that until the the last four weeks and this what seems to be an absolute fiasco, Wigan were a pretty well-run club. Um, you know, they were losing a lot of money under previous owners and after Premier League relegation, but they had kind of steadied the ship. So, you know, they aren't a basket place club normally. So that will tempt buyers, hopefully. Well, fingers crossed. Uh, more on this week's Toady Football League show, in which, Matt, I presume you'll also be touching on the extraordinary events uh, between Derby and Nottingham Forest this weekend. Um, no, not not if I've got any editorial control over the show. It won't even get a mention. Um, I've just about got over it. Um, yes, we'll probably talk about that. We'll definitely talk about Lee Johnson getting the sack as Bristol City manager, something which Sam Parkin predicted on last week's show would happen. But yeah, we might um, we might spend some time asking why Joe Worrell thought it was wise to give away a free kick in that kind of position in the 97th minute against a 10-man team. But, you know, it could be worse. Didn't throw myself into the canal. So, small victories. Right. One celebrating Forest fan, as you no doubt saw, listener, did just that. To, uh, to mark Forrest's win over Derby, only to be presumably told when he was fished out. Yes. Yeah. By yeah. the police, yes. 
There are, there are not many worse ways, I don't think, to find out your team has conceded a last-minute equaliser than by a police officer when being arrested. I wouldn't have thought. Mm. Well, uh, very shortly we'll have a quick check on uh, the games coming up in the next few days. First, though, here's Lee Price in conversation with Ben Green. Thank you very much, Jimbo. Hello, listeners. And hello, Lee Price from Paddy Power. Lee, let's please talk about something from the top, something from the bottom, and something a little bit sort of in between. Um, We'll start with Man City versus Newcastle. At the top, what's going to happen here, please? Yeah, signs that the world's going back to normal again. Bookies and pubs are reopening. I'm in the doghouse. And Manchester City are 1-10 to win a game of football. Uh, Newcastle have been pretty good, haven't they, recently? Hit and miss a little bit, but... They're 25 to 1 to win this game, and I know how good Man City are, but this is fundamentally a game with nothing on it, and that is a huge price for a decent team. The draw, should you fancy it, is 15 to 2. At the bottom, it's Watford versus Norwich. It's probably going to be ugly, but who's going to come out on top here? Mm, yeah, I've conjured an image in my head of do you know when managers say they, they ring certain fixtures and say that's a must win game? I can imagine Nigel Pearson's put about 20 rings around this fixture. Surely Watford have to beat Norwich. It's a huge opportunity in their fight against relegation. And we think they'll take it. It's 8-13 to 13 they win this one. Norwich, who haven't looked like winning very much at all since Project Restart, are 4-1 to one to take the spoils. The draw is 11-4. to four. And finally, what is happening in the market for the Golden Boot? Yeah, you're probably expecting, I'm going to say, Jamie Vardy is the odds-on favourite to win the Golden Boot after his two-goal tally over the weekend. But he'd only be half right. He is the favourite, but he's even money at the moment in the market. A lot of golf scores behind him, of course. Uh, first in contention is the man I call P, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. He's 3-1 to one to be top scorer this season. Or you've got Mohamed Salah at 5-1. to one. Or Danny Ings, don't rule him out, at 6-1. to one. Could be a value shot, but shaping up nicely. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, do stop. Coming up this week, there's a bit of Arsenal-Leicester on Tuesday. Watford, Norwich and Palace-Chelsea are also on that day. Wednesday, we'll have Man City facing Newcastle. Sheffield United hosting Wolves. West Ham will take on Burnley and uh, Brighton down there on the south coast, hosting Liverpool side who may well already be on the beach, although they don't say that to Jurgen Klopp. Before any of that, though, on Monday night, it's Spurs against Everton. Now, Spurs were in action since our last show. Uh, They had that 3-1 defeat away at Bramall Lane, and there was a lot of controversy, a lot of anger about VAR disallowing Harry Kane's equaliser because Lucas Moura had been fouled and the ball was then kicked into his, his arm as he put it down to avoid face planting in the turf uh, which it, it was quite egregious wasn't it yeah it was a very silly one I mean there was a couple last week there was one um, Riyad Mahrez scored a fifth goal for City against Liverpool um, they got disallowed as well I thought that was an interesting one actually because it made me think if a goalkeeper and defenders see that the ball clearly hits an attacker's hand do they just let him go through and score because you know if they were to try and stop Mahrez in that situation and foul him then it would still be a penalty because it wouldn't be VAR'd back to an instant outside the box. But if it, if they just let him waltz through and it goes in the goal, then presumably they will get a free kick. Does that make sense? It makes total sense, yeah. I can only hope that no Premier League defenders are listening to this show because I could <laughs> fundamentally alter the outcome of the rest of this season. Um, it did finish 3-1 uh, that night between Sheffield United and Spurs. Afterwards... 
Moo, who was fuming at the time, of course, and went and did one of his I'm Charming Me bits post-game. I'm not sure. If, did you see this? Chris Wilder was being interviewed uh, on the sidelines and Moo came up and put his arm around him. And Not really supposed to do that, though, are you? <laughs> no, indeed not. It's when you know Mourinho's kind of de-escalating when the two sides of his good cop, bad cop get so close together that within five minutes he's doing the I'm charming, aren't I? And then castigating his players and throwing huge reams of them under the bus at the same time. It's it's fun to watch unless you're a Spurs fan. Right. So five minutes later, how did he describe his players to the press? Yeah, he said that they... they had the wrong attitude that he saw how bad the second half performance would be by apparently seeing them at half time which this idea of 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 negative spurs players who can't fight to the end slightly rails against the the team we saw going deep in the champions league last season when all lost on several occasions which kind of makes you wonder what the the new factor is in that dressing room what do you mean by that well they've 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 got a manager who they know that when times go sour, tries to put a shield of self-protection around himself rather than uh, the siege mentality for which he was once so famous. Mm. Do you, that sounds like quite an explosive cocktail, Daniel. Do you, do you think it could blow up all over his face in the next few weeks? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, 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 all I do know is that, that the Spurs fan base has already become as divided as the Manchester United fan base and the Chelsea fan base eventually became and it's happened a lot quicker than normal. All right, well, Everton visiting this uh, less-than-happy household by the sound of it this Monday evening. Do you want to just wrap up with a, a prediction of what you think is going to happen for that? Michael? Uh, I think it will be a boring first half and a more exciting second half. <laughs> right, spooky. Um, Daniel? Uh, I'll say one all. I'll slightly jump off Michael's fence, but not lots. Okay, and how about the prediction king, Matt Davis Adams? Two <laughs> two, uh, Spurs to miss a penalty. All right. Okay. Well, all that should be coming to pass on Monday evening. Uh, Tuesday, we'll be back with another Totally Football Show, the European edition, and then Thursday, of course, we'll be rounding up all the rest of the uh, sort of midweeky Premier League games. For now, though, many, many thanks to Michael Cox, Daniel Story and Matt Davis-Adams for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mm, and to you too, listener. Do hope you join us again soon. For now, though, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter. And make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. Muddy Knees Media.